So welcome to this first week of summer, or alternately, the first day of winter. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot going on. Uh, two weeks ago, after a year and a half, uh, we had funeral events for Sojin Roshi to mourn his death and to celebrate his life and celebrate his teaching. We had one here in the Zendo and uh, another more elaborate uh, ceremony at Green Gulch. And I think that both of those videos, if you weren't able to see them, uh, both of those videos are available or are going to be available uh, on our website in the probably in the near future if they're not already up um, i could spend the rest of his talk uh, reflecting on the wonderful spirit of cooperation that uh, we experienced among our sangha members and the green gulch staff and our good friends at the Soto Zen International Center, uh, who uh, most most of you and most of the people of Green Gulch don't have uh, a lot of experience working with. So this was a great uh, it was a great opportunity to work with them and for them to express their uh, their real love for for Sojin. Uh, but among our various communities, we just worked so smoothly together uh, to honor our late teacher and uh, to do that by entering deeply the forms and the sustaining rituals of our Zen tradition, particularly of our Soto Zen tradition. So that was just it just was quite uplifting. Tonight, uh, Julian Friedrich Boisevain and uh, Nansan Harold Schuckelman, uh, friends from the Wind and Clouds Sangha, BZC's affiliate in Northern Germany, they're arriving in Berkeley uh, and we will begin a week long ceremony of Dharma transmission. Uh, this process, which has been twice postponed because of the pandemic is uh, sort of the culmination of our relationship and our work together over the last 12 years. Uh, which included from their side and from my side 
transatlantic journeys to our respective sanghas, uh, jukai ceremony, uh, priest ordination and shuso uh, empowerment that I did with them at Wind and Clouds with their community. Uh, again, uh, the subject of Dharma transmission and all of the deep and transformative rituals merit uh, an entire talk, uh, which I'm not going to give today. Uh, but just to say, uh, I will say that in the Soto tradition, uh, Dharma transmission is not an end state. It's actually just um, uh, essentially it's it's an empowerment that empowers you to uh, as a full priest to be able to transmit the precepts and transmit the lineage. Uh, and of course, so come back and later in this talk, we're all transmitting the precepts all the time. This is just a formal kind of ritual that uh, is offered to uh, people who uh, are seen as, as sort of holding the practice in a formal way. Uh, and like all rituals, it's just simply uh, stepping over another threshold into a new life and new roles, uh, but it's one among countless thresholds that, again, all of us are always stepping over. So I'm honored to be able to work with them to do this. So, okay, what do I want to talk about uh, today? I have been struggling over the last week or two to uh, reckon with all of the tangles in my head. So I want to start with a short passage uh, from the Jata Sutta, which is a relatively concise Pali text from the Samyutta Nikaya. And I've spoken about this before. Uh, it seems to be something I've come back to uh, as a touchstone, particularly in, in early Buddhism. So in this sutra, the, the Brahman Jata Bharavaja came to Shavasti, where the Buddha was in residence for that, at that point in time. And he asked the Buddha this question, the inner tangle and the outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. 
I ask you, Gautama, who can untangle this tangle? The inner tangle and the outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you, Gautama, who can untangle this tangle? When I first heard this, this verse, it just was kind of, it was just sort of stunning to me because it sounded like modern poetry. Uh, and yet it's, you know, it's 2,500 years old. So it's really, it's, from the moment I heard it, it's just stuck with me. Aside from the, along with the Jata Sutta, it's also, it's the, it's the epigraph that begins uh, Buddha Gosa's encyclopedic manual of meditation uh, called the Path of Purification, the Path of Purification, or the Vasudhi Maga, and it's like the entire next thousand pages are the answer or an attempted answer to this question, or multiple answers for how you might, multiple strategies for how you might uh, approach the question. But the Buddha did answer in this sutra, and he said, a man or woman established in virtue, wise, developing the mind, a person who is ardent and discreet, one like this can untangle the tangle. So we all live, as well we know, with our inner tangles, our sorrows and our desires, uh, the unavoidable gravitational pull of old age, sickness, and death. These tangles are just part of our life. It's part of our life in the Saha world, the world in which things have to be endured, which we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of months. And we also live within the outer tangle of the world, which I don't need to fully itemize. The first repentance verse, when we, we, we need to return to doing the Bodhisattva ceremony soon. Uh, but the first repentance verse, in that ceremony says it very clearly. It's talking about the same thing. Lo and behold, all my ancient tangles, karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, I now fully avow. So all my ancient tangled karma, which is the, uh, the, the interpenetration of the inner tangle and the outer tangle, and it's beginningless. Uh, it goes back way before one can even imagine.
So this inner tangle and this outer tangle is part of the, the karmic web that we are in. So as we have often heard, um, we don't own anything. All the things that we have are subject to going away, disappearing. Uh, and in the, in the tradition, what it says is that all that we own is our karma. That's the only thing you know, in, uh, in this life. And if you uh, if you're engaged with uh, an understanding that uh, the things set in motion in this life continue into other lives, uh, that's karma. Within this life, there is karma, cause and effect. That's all we own. That's all that goes with us throughout this life and from one life to the other. We also hear, so we own it. At the same time, we're taught that it's not exactly mine. It's not my, my karma, particularly. Maybe it's like the sticky effects and causes that so-called I identify with as I'm in the somewhat endless process of creating a provisional self. So to give a context for some of the tangle that I'm reckoning with, uh, perhaps I should give you a trigger warning uh, that I'm going to bring up some things that some may see as overtly political uh, and out of the context of what some might understand as properly the realm of the Dharma. To my way of thinking, the particular circumstances of our lives and our world, the inner tangle and the outer tangle together are the heart of our practice. So like many of you, many of us in our country, on all sides. Uh, my mind has been entangled in a series of horrific public events. And uh, stunning legal rulings 
that have, by the Supreme, US Supreme Court, that have overturned more than 100 years of evolving and seemingly settled cultural norms and laws regarding women's fundamental right to determine their uh, reproductive uh, wishes. The, the separation of church and state, limitations on the public carrying of guns, and only this Thursday, uh, the Supreme Court ruled against the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to restrict power plant emissions, which basically guts the EPA of any authority to address systemic climate change, which is already wreaking havoc in the world. So are we moving step by step towards autocracy? Are we moving towards fascism? Are we moving to see a, com a country that oddly emulates Viktor Orban's Hungary? Are we moving towards a kind of uh, unholy theocracy that we see in Narendra Modi's uh, violent Hindu fundamentalism or in Burma, the conflation of Buddhist nationalism, a frightening notion, and uh, military dictatorship. And here we have it in the United States with what seems to be a merging of the evangelical church and political movements attempting and succeeding at the destruction of democratic institutions. And I have said this before, my, my strong feeling is that when religion and the modern nation state join forces, the result is often violence and repression and nothing good comes from this. And there's a sense in which we're lucky to be practicing Buddhism, uh, which I think it's safe to say is never going to wield state power here. So looking at the widespread suffering in the Saha world, I feel angry and frightened and grieving. It's true, as everyone knows, as Sojourn often talked about, that the losses and abuses we experience today are really the unending pattern of history. This is beginningless greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, one could argue that this moment is the worst, but how many times have, have, have any of us thought this is the worst? 
you know, looking back through, you know, through the last 50 years of occasions of thinking that. Um, but we do have an accelerating uh, and rapidly expanding uh, potential for self-destruction. You know, in the 60s and the 70s, the, the imminent threat was nuclear uh, annihilation. That's still there. But the idea of environmental uh, uh, destruction was not even on the radar. So it's not good, whatever. Uh, and I understand the seductive power of greed, hatred, and delusion. How easily we're drawn into that by the difficult circumstances that we experience. And it's true, as I said, that again and again, throughout history, humans have come to the brink of apocalypse and cataclysm. So I want to return to this pivotal question of karma. Restating the point I made from the uh, earlier, I just want to give you a source for it. In the uh, Upaja Tatana Sutta, the Buddha offers uh, five reflections. And the fifth is as I had said, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, good or evil, to that I will be heir. So in the difficulty that I'm experiencing, that I'm sure I share with some of you. I am really grateful to be sustained by the voices of our tradition and also particularly by the voices of and actions of many in our community and of uh, fellow Buddhist teachers speaking clearly about how they see things and what they are doing. So what is to be done? Well, many things. There's much that we can still do as individuals. There's much that we can do within the legal and electoral framework. And there's much we can do uh, in all of these, all of these aspects of our lives to uh, mitigate and roll back the hatred and violence that's in the air. And if you want to know more about what I think, just drop me a line or come by for tea and uh, we can talk about it. <laughs>
But I want to say that if we are the owners of our actions or karma, we're also the owners of this practice. The Buddha's way becomes our way. Along with the breath, the one activity that we can do until our last moment is to practice. And we recognize that not only does our karma, our actions, our practice, not only does that bear on our own existence, but it also uh, affects others, all those around us. So in that same sutra that I just quoted, in the next paragraph, it says, a disciple of the noble ones considers this. I am not the only one who is the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions. That means to the extent that there are other beings, past, present, and future, these beings are also affected and are interdependent on the actions of others like you and me. And so even in our personal or social despair, we can or we must return to practice. We listen to some of our elders who uh, have been exploring the same territory. This is this has been the message of Joanna Macy for many years to one of her earlier uh, formulations was uh, to work in the field of despair and empowerment, to find that our despair shines a light on our actual, the depth of our feeling and our power. So with that in mind, we turn to our practice. We rely on our practice, we take refuge practice. So a month ago, I actually almost gave the same talk. because uh, I was I was rewriting it and I realized, wait, I talked about this. Um, that's how good my memory is these days. Um, a month ago, I spoke about radical hope, and wise hope, as distinct from optimism. And I referenced uh, a really amazing book, uh, Radical Hope, Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation uh, by Jonathan Lear, who teaches social thought and philosophy at the University of Chicago. Here's some of what I said last month, and I think 
it bears repeating as the storms of uh, reaction and repression bear down on us. So the, at the center of this book is a story that just gripped his attention. It's a story about the last great tribal leader of the Crow Indian tribe, uh, who lived from about 1855 to 1932. His name was Plenty Poo. Who, uh, as in Stripe, C-O-U-P-S. Uh, and late in life, he told his story to uh, to a, an Anglo friend uh, in Montana, an ethnographer and writer named Frank Linderman. And at one point in this story, he tells about the destruction of uh, the traditional way of life, which was based on hunting. And it was a nomadic way of life based on hunting and with a with a warrior ethos. And what Plenty Coup says, when the buffalo went away, the hearts of my people fell to the ground and they could not lift them up again. Maybe that's the kind of future that we're facing. And he said, after this, nothing happened. It's a really startling expression. After this, nothing happened means that the end of an ancient way of life that defined the culture of this tribe, uh, every value and virtue that had been built into their people's identity as, as Crow, it lost its meaning in the confrontation with settler colonialism in the West. There were no buffalo left. There was no ability to be nomadic. There was no warrior culture, no traditional way to express honor or courage or excellence. And Plenty Coup's story raises this pivotal question. How should one face the possibility that one's way of life and one's culture might collapse? So in his life, when he was 10 years old, Plenty Coup had a dream. And perhaps it was, you know, dreams in some cultures, they see them as prophetic. Uh, they see them as foretelling something or a message from outside. And we can also see them as uh, a deep intuitive sense that one couldn't articulate in any other way for how 
for what intuitive sense about what's going on and that might point the way towards the future. Uh, so he had this dream when he was 10 years old before any of this terrible devastation had happened. And in the course of that dream, all the buffalo disappeared and all the trees were cut down. It was one solitary tree standing and underneath that, uh, there sat a very old man. And that old man was Plentiku, the 10 year old boy, all those years later in his dream. And up in the branches, there was a solitary chickadee. This may actually be our world, the world we're coming to. And it will surely, by extension, it will surely be our life. Because inevitably, all that we see as our way of life will go away. That is part of the message that the Buddha left for us, but it's also we see it all around us. And some of us, we are now coming to an age where we are experiencing it. Uh, all these things that we valued about ourselves and those we love, we see them ebbing. So up in the tree is the chickadee person. The chickadee person is a um, small bird. Um, you know, it doesn't have the grandeur or iconic strength of an eagle or a hawk or an owl. It seems quite vulnerable. But what it has in the legend and in the dream is a very flexible mind. The chickadee's strength is in listening. Listening very closely and never missing an opportunity to learn from others and to learn from the circumstances it inhabits, to learn about its survival, to learn about the continuation of its family, And I think this is what the Buddha means when he says to the Brahmin Jata that only one established in virtue, wise, ardent, and discreet, can untangle this tangle. 
only one who is embedded in this practice, only one who is able to listen closely and watch closely inside, watch and look, listen to the inner tangle and the outer tangle is going to have any chance of untangling the tangle. So it happens that um, the Crow tribe actually survived and survives to this day, but it did so with the guidance of Plenty Ku's dream. And it did so in many ways in having to make compromises, in having to deal with the loss and devastation, and at the same time asking, how can we live? How can we continue? even in the face of, of this, these terrible circumstances. They depended on the chickadee's wisdom, or we can depend on the wisdom of our practice. One commentator uh, on this book writes, the dream and the chickadee become a way of redefining the virtue of courage. A courage that is rooted in listening instead of war. Wisdom instead of self-certain action. I confess, I feel often pulled towards self-certain action. this perspective and the perspective of practice invites me to wait and listen and really observe. I like to think that we will survive by virtue of our practice, which has everything to do with listening. Or Maybe we will not survive. We may not survive either a rapidly approaching cataclysm and ultimately we surely won't survive the steady loss of aging. But this practice itself can survive so that it may be available to generations to come just as it actually has been passed along to us by almost a hundred generations of practitioners from the time of Shakyamuni Buddha to today. This returns me to the idea of Dharma transmission, if you will, 
which is all of our responsibility. We are transmitting the Dharma simply by sitting here on a Saturday morning. See, there's 42 of you uh, online, and it looks like there's maybe 20, 25 of you in the Zendo. This is our responsibility to listen. Listen to the bird right now. Listen to your inner voices. Listen to the cries of the world. And simply by the act of listening, we enable ourselves to transmit the Dharma, which is all that our teachers ever wanted or expected from us. So I'm going to stop there and take questions or comments. Yes, Ellen. Um, I wondered um, if you could talk a little bit more about how you see the interface between the inner and outer channels. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the way I understand it is that uh, I don't see a separation. I see, I see, it, it seems to be, there's sort of like a, these are general territories of existence, but uh, there's a place in which they are all enmeshed in each other, that, that what I take, if you want to take it in psychological terms, what I see as my psychology is also determined by what is uh, more widely the reality of, of the world, you know? So, uh, you know, probably you, like, like I, grew up at a time when these kind of existential nuclear fears were planted in us. Uh, they're there, that's, that's a part of my inner tangle. And it's also part of the outer tangle, which hasn't gone away. So if, if that makes some sense, that's, that's partly how I see it. And also uh, the other side, and I think this is, this is some of the work that uh, I really draw clarity from uh, the writing of David Loy, uh, who's Buddhist philosopher, who's Zen, a Zen teacher as well, uh, who talks about his central con concept is the kind of driving force of this sense of lack that we have in ourselves. And he wrote a wonderful book about uh, the history of Western civilization as uh, a sort of collective and wild effort to somehow fill the sense of lack that we perceive within ourselves. And that lack is just, you know, fundamentally the question is like, am I real? You know, because we dig down to keep trying to find what the core is. And, you know, Buddhism tells us, well, there's not a core. It's all interaction. So civilization can be seen as a 
a kind of lack project. So that that's the two sides. Could I ask a follow-up? Sure, sure. So so theoretically, if you could untangle the inner tangle, would there be an outer tangle? I think that for me, actually, there's something I've said for you know about about our practice. My understanding, anyway, is. Uh, we work from the inside out and the outside in. And since they are both completely involved in each other, uh, working on the inner tangle carries with it the responsibility to work on the outer tangle. And working on the outer tangle without working on the inner tangle is just kind of spinning your wheels, I think. And we see this in, you know, all of us have encountered this in in realms of social action we've had you know it's like it, i had to get to the i had to get to a place where i just felt like i was hitting the wall before i realized that there was internal work that i had to do in order to find some productive way to uh, work on social change yeah greg hi Ah, okay. There's another talk. Uh, Carol just gave that talk. Um, <laughs> um, uh, what I find is that joy arises. You know, that's that's what I trust, and I, partly I trust it. I think I have a, I have a kind of anhedonic gene that I carry. So joy is not always so easy for me. But all of the wonderful teachers that I've met, oh, I'm sorry, somebody says uh, online, they're asking, uh, given what I said, uh, how do we call forth joy? Is that a fair? Okay. So anyway, uh, what I've seen is that the practice generates joy. I feel joy being with you. I feel grateful and happy uh, and in, in relationship. And, you know, you meet, you know, listen to the tapes of Suzuki Roshi, he's laughing a lot. Listen to tapes of Sochin, he's laughing a lot. And as much as they're laughing, it seems like in maybe inappropriate places, but not really. They're just, it's just joy that's bubbling up. And I've seen this in so many of the oh, so many wonderful teachers that I've had an opportunity to encounter. So I trust that as an artifact of the practice. And I just I think you can you just you need to tune to it when it's you know to see when it's happening in you. But I, I do trust that as something that is somehow part of the structure. Uh, a way of celebrating our life. The practice is a celebration of life. Yeah. So maybe we can both feel joy and feel disappointment and feel joy and feel fear and they can both be there together. Right. So what, what uh, Greg was saying is so maybe we can feel both joy and sorrow, 
joy and dissatisfaction together? You know, I think so. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure what uh, the traditional understanding, traditional understanding of this is like, well, there's the joy dharma and there's the grief dharma and there's a despair dharma and somehow they're, they are distinct. And I just, just my, I don't feel it that way. Uh, I, I feel things coming up together. Uh, so I don't want to give a categorical answer. I can just tell you how it feels to me. There's, uh, there's sadness that comes up with joy and it's, that can be very rich. And there's joy that comes up with, with sadness and grief. Uh, John. There's a time-honored way, which is to get out of your head. So get into your body, become active with your body and engage with your body in a really vigorous way. And that's, that also brings up joy. Yeah. Did you hear that? Uh, John was saying there's a time-honored way uh, of getting out of your head uh, to engage with your body and engaging with your body has this great potential for joy. There's a potential for, for your, your sense of, a sense of empowerment in a sense. And it's also true that there are places, there are times and places where you may not be able to do that. And what's available to you then is question I would ask, you know, open question. Joel. Hi, thank you. This was perfect. I want to raise the question of despair and how we can practice within despair. It seems to me that that is possible. Um, it's just another condition in which we're practicing that we, okay, I don't have hope and I'm going to practice. And somehow within that, there's some kind of joy. Anyway, so from that perspective, uh, how do you work with this? How, that perspective of here we are, let's say we're in despair and we're practicing and that's what we're going to be doing. I mean, how does that work for you, if that makes any sense? I think that the important thing I try to remember when, um, there, there's two approaches. <laughs> One is what, what John said, which is actually to do something physical. Yeah. To actually uh, change my mind, mm -hmm. change my physical state. But the other thing is also to not isolate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Really important not to, not to isolate, not to, uh, not to give despair, not to give over to despair this sense that despair is all and mm -hmm. to be with people that one loves 
And just to be with somebody that one loves is already to call forth another state. And I want to, you know, I would broaden that sense of love. It's like, uh, be with your Sangha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we hold each other. And yes. we, we have learned enough. I've seen it here to be able to hold ourselves and each other through joy and sorrow. And I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't tell you how, how wonderful, how important that is in, in my life. I feel like it's life saving. So thank you. Exactly. Thank you. I think that the despair I'm talking about of just no hope in somehow includes, well, I think of it in terms of our nation. Um, I don't think of it at all in terms of our practice. So maybe it's not as complete despair as you're imagining. Um, I mean, and so, so in a sense, you, that's a beautiful answer that despair. Okay. There's no hope in me right now for my nation. And I have great hope in my friends in, in the Sangha and um, in music and learning Dharma. Well, I, I, I want to take other questions, but I want to answer this very briefly, mm-hmm. and which uh, there's so much that I love in this country. Mm-hmm. There's much that I revile and that scares me but there's so much that i love that i've seen expressed over my lifetime uh i never write off this problems with the idea of a nation but i Mm -hmm. never write off this larger body that we're a part of it's just I work at expanding that body to include other bodies, but mm-hmm. there's something there's a lot that's wonderful. There's a lot that's wonderful right in this room. And this room is not separate from the nation. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Okay, Peter. Thank you, Hosan. Uh <clears throat> you've talked movingly. Uh, several times in, in recent memory about listening. And uh, most recently, well, a little while ago, you talked about it as, in a way, turning your attention to the soundscape that we all exist in and really paying attention to that and exploring it. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about listening as a metaphor for turning your attention to other fields of awareness. Like uh, I realize it could be it'd be a really different way of of experiencing your body or your vision and so on, or your mind. Well, I think it applies to all the sense fields. Just listening is is really easy. Um, mm-hmm. you know uh, tasting 
you know, but we're not tasting much as we're sitting here in Zazen, you know, and we have our eyes yeah. half closed, so we're not we're not seeing much, um, you know, but we can always open our ears and hear, but it, it's applicable to all the sense fields. So that's, that's yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Ajayan? Thank you very much, Hosan, for a nice talk and it's very, very effective. So I would like to ask you a few things from your talk. Uh, that uh, you told that in the talk that uh, uh, if we, we, we are the owner of our karma and uh, the same time we are the owner of our, our practice. And if we are owner of our karma, we have the same time we have the, we are the owner of our practice. So, uh, and at the same time we have the karma and the result of the karma sooner or later. So the result of the karma falls upon me uh, whether I am not part of that karma, so how do we respond to that? If the if I am owner of the karma, if the karma result falls upon me, which doesn't relate to the my karma, yeah, how should be I part of that karma? Well, um, <laughs> I think first of all, I just want to say something that I heard Sotiroshi say over and over again uh, that zazen is. Uh, non-karmic activity. And that's a whole other discussion. Uh, in our life, though, we're always acting and we're always acted upon. Uh, and I think that to me, the, the, the virtue of a Buddhist understanding of karma is that it's not something that determines our fate. It's something that allows us, whatever we're experiencing, we have a choice about how we want to go forward from that moment in that experience. And that determines the direction, uh, the next step, the next karmic step that we take. And that can be deeper into the into the swamp, or it can be uh, stepping forward into the high ground. Uh, so uh, there are things that accrue to us, and you know we should study about karma sometime because there's a lot of stuff that happens that we experience that is not necessarily karmic. That is, there are other causes for it, but how we respond. To whatever we experience is karmic. And so what the Buddhist idea of karma gives us choice. Uh, and so we should take that up, I think. Thank you. Uh, EJI, and you may be the last one. Thank you very much. And I appreciate your talk and the topic that you brought up. Um, yeah, thank you. One of the things that I've been studying over the past year is um, American history and the Civil War. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there were, of course, as everyone know, everything's basically broke down between the North and the South, which is the slave states and the free states, as they call them. 
And I see that same challenge between, you know, the two party system, that's still that same struggle. <clears throat> so the comment of despair was an interesting one because I thought to myself, what would my ancestors, how did my ancestors handle despair being, being, being enslaved for hundreds of years? Uh, how, did, how did they handle this, um, despair? And I thought about the way African-American, you know, uh, Pentecostal people worship, you know, you talked about being in the body <clears throat> and in those environments, people were very much in their body. I know that, um, I remember hearing uh, Alan Watts talk about that, that, that whole idea of being in, in spirited. So, yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to throw that out and see if you have any comments about any of that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I wish I understood more deeply how people encountered the kinds of devastation, the various kinds of devastation that uh, we've seen historically and to recognize, you know, also, uh, I think that a lot of the roots of what, you know, to me, there's some of the roots of the roots to the Civil War are also, there's still, there's like a Civil War that's still happening. Uh, the terms may be somewhat different. Uh, there is various kinds of progress that we made, but there's some states of mind that, that just are continuing. And how people, how African-American people survive, uh, what the role of spirit is for them is very interesting to me. Uh, you know, I have a more visceral sense of it in terms of uh, sort of post-Holocaust Judaism. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, actually this, this book, Radical Hope, is talking about it for any, for a particular uh, indigenous uh, community, the Crow, uh, and maybe the common thing is to do whatever we goddamn well can do to preserve our fundamental humanity. To remember that we're alive. To remember that we can love, even when we're feeling despair. Uh, to pay attention to even the small sprouts of joy that can come up through the sidewalk. Uh, and sometimes it's the best we can do even in, in, a, in a terrible uh, circumstance. But it seems to me available. And, you know, I've been in some I've been privileged to witness some communities in, in devastation. And even there, uh, 
to see these threads of love and even of joy persisting is is powerful you know and one can ask could i do that i don't i don't know always but uh i think we have to we have to listen real carefully watch real carefully so i think that's where and we'll end with the uh bodhisattva vows Beings are number nine.